what is the most natural human way to get people to care about those outside of themselves? Like in a, in a meaningful way, right? In a, in a way that actually um, inspires you to sacrifice. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. John Johnson here with Larissa Bianco and joined today by our very special guest, Dr. Joseph Wysocki of the Belmont Abbey Honors uh, Program, Belmont Abbey College, uh, Dean of the Honors Program. Is that right? Yeah. Thank you uh, so much for having me. We're, we're happy to have you, and we're very excited to announce that the Belmont Abbey Honors College is the newest of AMI's endorsed institutions. And we get asked a lot why we endorse other institutions. And really, that's because there is absolutely no replacement for the brick and mortar college experience, and especially when combined with an authentic liberal arts tradition. Uh, that's where the good stuff happens. And the reason we endorse colleges like yours and programs like yours is to send people there to promote the good work that you're doing. And the reason AMI's fellowship exists is to uh, give somebody like a, you know, a parent of your student or an alumni of or an, an alumni of your institution a place to continue the good stuff. And so we're so excited to be welcoming Belmont Abbey Honors Program to the endorsed institutions and very grateful to have you here. There's a lot we want to talk about. Uh, tell us just a little bit about Belmont. Give us the elevator pitch for Belmont Abbey Honors Honors Program. Sure. So, uh, I mean, just first in general about Belmont Abbey, we're a Benedictine Catholic college about 15 minutes from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and so we've always had a dedication in the institution as a whole to uh, the great books of the Western tradition uh, taught from the perspective of the Catholic intellectual tradition. But uh, the Honors College is a specific program that's um, a revamp of an older program, an honors program, an honors institute that always had a bit of a great books feel. But four years ago, I was asked to help found with my intellectual mentor, Dr. Gene Thewitt, a new program that would provide a, uh, a comprehensive four-year great books program. Uh, obviously, there are others out there like that. Uh, we're not the first program to do that. And so many of the others uh, of your partner institutions have those types of programs. Um, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Wyoming Catholic, St. John's. So we wanted to do it in our own way. And so I guess the elevator pitch would be would be this. Um, it, it It's taught from the standpoint of uh, a four-year program with four kind of perspectives or parts that are put into dialogue with one another. Um, ancients, Christians moderns, and then something called the crises in the West. Uh, I think the last part is probably one of the most unique in terms of the curriculum of our program. Uh, but, but you know, students begin freshman year with ancient great authors, poets, philosophers, historians, so Greeks and Romans, move on to the Christians in sophomore year, fall of their sophomore year, scripture, doctors, fathers of the church, um, two semesters of moderns, modern poets like Shakespeare that we might talk a bit about today, uh, modern political thinkers like Machiavelli, Locke, Hobbes, philosophers like Descartes. Um, and then we come back to Christianity, which I think is kind of cool um, in putting these perspectives into dialogue that um, 
after two semesters of moderns, we come back to Christianity because, of course, we think that Christianity has an answer to modernity. Uh, it doesn't sort of stand silent uh, before the criticisms of modernity. It can engage uh, with modernity. And then that senior year called the Crises of the West, very cool, I think, where we are um, bringing the big, the big questions of the great books to bear on the 21st century and looking at contemporary authors on, on more topical courses like marriage and the family, science and technology, uh, foreign policy, history and the idea of progress, um, which is very unique. I think the other big thing that, that distinguishes our program from some of the great books programs is that you can do a four-year great books program, but also blend that with any major offered at Belmont Abbey College. Right. So oh, that's great. I, I think the, the the models that you see out there, right, are, are places that do just great books, you know, four years of a great books program. And my wife went to one. She went to Thomas Aquinas. She loved it. I think it's a, a great program. Um, or you see other programs where you have a core curriculum that you sort of get out of the way, you know, after your first two years and then you move on to your major. And we wanted to blend something where like you, you could do a major. You could major in accounting and business because we think, hey, accountants should have read Plato. Uh, and biologists should have read Plato and uh, business leaders should have read St. Augustine. So I think that's probably the coolest part. Um, but like you said, I, I mean, I think you've made such a good point about the brick and mortar experience of colleges. I mean, the secondary part that's so important is a learning community, right? And that's why we have that curriculum go over four years, not just because it, it adds to the richness of what you're able to read, but that you will share that experience with other students and faculty over the course of four years. Um, you know, dur during COVID, it's kind of funny. Uh, we, we, for one semester or half a semester had, uh, you know, virtual classes and the summer after, right when COVID first hit. And we, we went back to in-person very quickly, which was great. We had a couple of Zoom classes for the Honors College and they worked, um, but it was only because it was only because we had formed that community ahead of time. I don't yeah. think that those, I mean, they, we, had, we had an incredible Montesquieu and, and of course on the Henriade. But it's because those students knew me and they knew one another. Um, I think without that, I think it's really difficult to have meaningful conversations. So, yeah, so much of my uh, undergraduate experience, the education therein happened outside at the fountain, uh, hanging out with hanging out with professors and students alike, uh, even maybe more so than what happened in the classroom. So I agree. It's it's irreplaceable and no online program. Uh, no matter how good it is, can can uh, can meet that. Um, I want to ask you, and this is great because your wife went to Thomas Aquinas College, and there's a certain kind of student who can thrive in a certain kind of place. I wouldn't recommend every student go to Thomas Aquinas College. I think I would have done miserably there uh, because of my sort of rebellious streak. So um, I needed a little bit more rocky soil in which in which my taproot could could. Uh, could could get down there and, and grow and flourish. What sort of a soul would be best uh, to thrive at a place like Belmont Abbey College? Yeah, um, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think there are probably you know more than one, but okay. So I think he, he, this may be our, our formation, the efficient cause of our the formation of our program might help you to understand the types of souls that I think would be drawn to our program. One, we're a Benedictine Abbey on our campus, right? And, and Benedictine monks, unlike say Franciscans or Jesuits uh, are dedicated to the contemplative life, right? They're, they're not an apostolic order that goes out into the cities. They, they stay in one place, they take a vow of stability uh, and they're contemplatives. On the other hand, um, me uh, or I, 
who, who helped to found the program and my mentor, we were political philosophers. Um, and so I think the blend there, right, of, of the contemplative monastic presence and then the intellectual foundation um, or founders being political philosophers uh, kind of blends uh, to create the charism, uh, charism of our program, which I think is sort of um, those who are interested in living the active life. And that, that could mean political life, business life, right? But sort of going out to live in the world and, and be leaders in some way, um, but, but are also thoughtful and want to understand the theoretical underpinnings and the big questions about those things, right? So those who want to go out and do justice, but uh, they want to understand justice, right? I think for me, I mean, I, maybe I can relate it through my own personal story of coming to the Abbey and my mentor, Dr. Thud, who helped to found this program. And, and, and my journey was one where I wanted to go out, I, I wanted to major in political science and become a prosecutor, right? I was very, very gung-ho about living the active political life. And then I took a course on Plato's Republic my junior year with Dr. Thuit. And of course, the big question of Plato's Republic is, what is justice? And, you know, as most young college students come to college, we think we know, uh, we, we think we know everything, right? And we're ready to go out and do things. We just, we just need the skills to go out and do it. We need the skills and the connections. Um, and that, that course kind of stopped me in my tracks and forced me to to really grapple with the question, what is justice? And I just kind of fell in love with those questions. Um, so I think, um, hopefully, hopefully I'm answering your question. I think the type of soul would be those who are um, kind of drawn to the active life, but also want to reflect on uh, the principles under which they would live that active life. Yeah, no, that's great. And the, uh, the, the, the Abbey Honors College is sort of a college within a college. At a place like TAC, uh, there's no woke, funny business. There's no liturgical strangeness. Uh, it, it's a very, it's a very airtight bubble, uh, for better or for worse. Right. Um, I would do terribly in a bubble, but it, you know, having having sort of uh, the bad guys, so to speak, close gives gives a student opportunity for sort of. I guess you could say an intellectual target practice that was very beneficial to somebody like me. Yeah. Um, how much of a bubble versus battleground is Belmont Abbey College as a whole? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be somewhere in between meaning this, right? I don't, I don't think there is um, a sort of angry, woke, postmodern presence on campus. I don't think that is the case. On the other hand, I mean, from the beginning, Belmont Abbey was founded as a college uh, by Catholic monks in a state at the time that was less than one half percent Catholic. So you had these German speaking monks coming down from St. Vincent's Abbey um, in Pit uh, near Pittsburgh, Latrobe, to to the Bible Belt. Oh, wow. um, and so uh, we've always been, you know, that that sort of characterized our student body uh, and the community in which we live. So he's, we've always had to sort of engage in fruitful ecumenism, I think, um, in in the life of the college. And that doesn't mean sort of modern, um, modern, bad, you know, tolerance of ecumenism. We're all right. You're all right. Let everybody do it. But, but to engage, to engage with Protestants, to engage with non-believers. And so our, our student body, I think is a lot more diverse. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's so clear to students when they come to our campus, who we are. And uh, I think within the honors college, there's probably 
a bit more of that bubble, meaning that students who are coming to the program have some interest in the great books when they when they're coming in. Most of them tend to be Catholic or seriously religious students, although not all of them, but but many of them. So yeah, fantastic. Uh, let's get into it. I, w- I want to talk about ideas here. Sure. I want to talk about politics and especially leadership. Yeah, let's talk about the ideal education for. A statesman. Okay, yeah. Uh, it seems like that's lacking today. But what do you think? Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. What What is the focus on today, and in, in terms of political education? I think most most modern politics departments are interested in things like policy, right? The nitty gritty of policy, foreign domestic policy. Uh, they're interested in sort of quant- quantitative politics, right? Un- understanding voter behavior, understanding messaging, um, what works. Uh, they're they're kind of, uh, I guess I would say they're very often are in our educations in sophistry. Um, so how do you position oneself? How do you win? Um, and then understanding the sort of techne of policymaking, which is not unimportant, right? It's not unimportant to understand how to make policy, um, but but I think that is um, very limited if you understand politics in, in terms of winning elections and then crafting policy. Right? Would you call that a sort of Machiavellian tendency? Uh, I, yeah, I think that's right. And th- that's not to say, right, that um, th- that's always existed. Right. That's always yes, it existed. has. Um, but but I think, yeah, sort, sort of pol- political communications and policymaking. Right. So sort of technocratic education uh, in terms of policymaking and then political communications, which is sort of a sophistry. Um, again, you know, both of those things are important to, to achieve the good, right? Even if, even if you are a statesman and you want to achieve good ends, whatever that might be for, for the city, for the state, um, those things are important, but they're not all that's there, right? So, so what is it missing? Um, I think certainly it's missing, um, at the most basic level, reopening the questions, right? I think so many statesmen, um, statesmen, I, I don't want to use that word. So many people who go into politics haven't even asked the big questions, right? They have been, they've been taught the answers to those questions um, or from someone, from their parents, from the media, their, the, the news media of their choice. And then, um, they want to become activists, right? Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess to come back, I mean, those two things I mentioned, technocratic policy education and sort of com- and political communications, uh, those things are tools for activism, right? I think, and, and and not just in political science departments, but in colleges as a whole, I think they've often kind of come to understand their role as empowering activists. And that to me is really dangerous. Right. Do you think that just a question on Machiavelli, it's kind of an internal debate. Do you think the prince is a seriously crafted playbook, a tactical playbook or a work of satire? Yeah. Is he making fun of these people or is he is he seriously trying to compel some sort of political paradigm paradigm shift Mm -hmm. as much as I hate that term? Sure. Yeah, I, I think he's serious. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think his criticism of Christianity is serious. 
Um, I think he sees himself as uh, the words he uses, right? Uh, bringing in new modes and orders. Um, I think his criticism of what he calls what imagined republics is serious. Um, I mean, a bigger question might be how much um, one I think that is more open is does he prefer principalities or republics, right? And that, and that, in in the because he wrote two books, right? The, yeah. the Prince and the Discourses on Livy. Um, I think that's an open question. Whether or not, um, I, I mean, I think his new conception of virtue that he lays out in The Prince um, and, and the virtues that he lays out. Um, and by that, you mean that virtue is so difficult, we might, we might as well not even try and, and, and go for that which we can attain, namely power. Or, or what do you mean by that? Yeah, something like that. I think um, that that a, that a prince ought to do good when it is possible, but he must learn how to do evil or fall to the ruin of those who are evil, right? Yeah. Um, and that and that virtue is a sort of calc using your power well and calculating well to maintain uh, maintain one's regime. Right? Yeah. And that and that and that often appearances may be more important than reality, right? It's far more important to appear pious than to actually be pious, right? He says of all the virtues he lays out, like generosity or what he calls liberality, liberality, uh, faithfulness in terms of agreements, piety. He says that's the most important one to appear to be. Uh, I, I think he's serious about that, right? That it's that it's important to appear pious, but. Uh, and to be pious when one can, but not when it gets in the way of maintaining or, or um, achieving a new principality. Okay, so let's let's talk historical examples. Uh, let's talk about the warrior king, Henry V. Sure. Uh, sort of uh, proto-Machiavellian or pre-Machiavellian or, or pious king. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so, maybe give a little historical context for the, for those of our audience who don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. Right. So, uh, to, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on the historical Henry V, but um, Shakespeare's Henry V. Shakespeare's Henry V. Right, yes. Shakespeare's yeah. Henry V I can talk about. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess um, to talk a little bit about Henry V and, and answer that very big question that I think has been debated by by scholars intensely over the years. We have to understand a little bit of where Henry's coming from, and that is right. The the play that that bears his name is the last play uh, in a four part tetralogy, the second tetralogy. Even though chronologically it, it comes first, it's called the second tetralogy uh, because it was written second, uh, and and that's a four part play of Richard the Second, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and then Henry the Fifth. Henry V does not really appear, or Prince Hal or Prince Henry doesn't really appear in Richard II, except for uh, where we note his absence at the end of the play, right? The play is about his father, Henry Bolingbroke, who usurps, who usurps the crown from Richard II, who arguably is a pretty bad king uh, in terms of how he actually rules. Uh, in, in a number of ways, we can see that Richard... Um, uh, has many failings as a king and, and makes some really bad mistakes that lead to his father usurping the crown. Um, and then in Henry the fourth part one and two, we see his father trying to maintain peace internally in the English regime, 
right? So these are the things that we have in, in Henry V's background. We know that one, um, his father is a usurper. Um, and what does that mean? Is there a sort of fundamental original sin that mars his kingship, right? Um, if, if his father committed this crime, right, um, does, that, does that mar his, his kingship for, um, for his, right, and, and the, the line, his whole line? Um, and that's something that he has to grapple with. And we see him talking about it in, at the end of Henry V before the great battle at Agincourt. Um, we also see that um, he 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 watches right that play out with his father, um, and so he he learns uh, he learns from his father. He learns from this guy Falstaff. We can talk a little bit about that. Um, and then in Henry V, that play right, it's the sort of glorious war play, right? Him in France the entire time. Uh, something that his father hoped to do, fight a foreign war, particularly his father wanted to fight in the Crusades, but he never makes it. Um, but Henry gets to fight a foreign war. Um, so, yeah, um, hmm. to come back to the big question of, of Machiavell versus Christian King. Here's a, huh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, here's the thing. He's got to he's got to unite the kingdom. Right. He's got to he's got to spread, spread the kingdom and he's got a chance to do it in a, in a place that's kind of crazy at the time in France. And uh, what can a king do? I mean, even beyond Henry, Henry V, right? Constantine, mm-hmm. he accepted baptism on his deathbed because he knew he's going to have to do some dirty things. Right. He's going to have to kill some people mm-hmm. uh, or at least the, so the story goes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think there's, yeah, I mean, we have this, this question of necessity and, and what is, what is it that he's forced to do? Um, and in those cases where he's forced to do things that are maybe uses of violence or deceit, um, does he try to limit those things as much as he can? And I think that's an interesting question, right? So um, does he in Shakespeare's play? Yeah, I mean, I think there are clear examples of of, Hen- of Prince Hal and Henry V using deceit, right? That that is true. He tells us, right, in Henry the Fourth Part One, that all of this um, hanging out with Falstaff and drunks and body people in the taverns is part of his plan, right? Uh, it's going to be this foil that he's going to use so that his reformation can be glorious, right? He understands that appearances are very important, right? And this is something I think that his father understands, that he understands that Richard II did not understand, right? Richard II um, has many faults, but one of his faults is that he doesn't understand rhetoric uh, and he doesn't understand public opinion and the need for public opinion to support oneself, right? Henry IV understands this. There's a famous line by, by Richard II. I was early on in the play. I was born not to sue, but to command, right? I don't have to persuade anyone. The formal powers of kingship are enough, right? And so I'm going to command. Whereas Henry IV, because he's a usurper, um, he knows that he has to rely on opinion. He gives Henry, his son, um, a great lesson about opinion, right? Later on in- Can I ask you a quick question? What is the difference between formal and informal power in that sense? Is that a question of legitimacy? 
Yeah, right. So I think um, you, you hear you have this language in Richard II about the scepter and the bomb um, and all of these ceremonial signs of kingship, right? That um, because one is uh, ordained or right, um, when that was that the word? Um, a cor- right, the one's, one's coronation um, leads to right the possession of all these formal powers right, that are ordained by God, and one can simply rely on those things. And one need not really worry about the opinions of others, whether that's the opinions of nobles, of of the nobility, uh, or the opinions of the commoners, right? And so he has a sort of, Richard II has an open scorn for commoners. That that becomes clear throughout Richard II, right? He he criticizes Henry IV after, uh, well, Bolingbroke, after he exiles him. You know, his big mistake is he exiles Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV. And then he takes his land, right? Um, and by undermining succession, undermines his own legitimacy. But um, when Henry the Fourth or, or Bolingbroke goes off on his exile, he's seen sort of being kind to commoners, and this kind of disgusts Richard the Second, right? He also doesn't understand uh, nobility, right? He doesn't understand that uh, the nobles are lovers of honor. And so we have this battle scene between Bolingbroke and Mowbray. This guy, they're 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 accusing one another early on in, in Richard II of of treachery, and they want to have a duel. And Richard II is going to allow it, and then at the last minute, he cuts it off. And so he denies both of these men honor, and then he sends them on their way into exile. And he says, "I hope you guys will never do anything bad. You have to promise me you'll never do anything bad uh, to harm me, and that you won't be friends with one another." Right. Like this complete Deal. misunderstanding of of both commoners and the nobles, and then right an utter lack of understanding that he needs to persuade anyone, right? So if I can rely on the fact that I have the bomb, the scepter, the formal power, I don't need to worry about persuasion at all. Does Shakespeare's Henry think of himself as a legitimate formal ruler? There's a uh, there's a scene in the the last. Uh, movie made about this the netflix movie really did you see that one the hollow crown or no the amazon one with uh no yeah on the netflix it's uh i can't remember the name of it it's the kid from dune yeah 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 really good um but there's a scene when the princess he's like questioning his own legitimacy and the princess says all monarchy is illegitimate Mm -hmm. Uh, what what does shakespeare's henry think about his own place there yeah yeah. Um, and that is, I, I think that's a really good question, right? Um, if you begin with Richard II, you sort of go, okay, well, here's here's a legitimate king who um, came to the crown through heredity. But certainly the new line, the land. Yeah, Henry's like line, sort of in the line, but five times removed or something like that. Right. Um, Say, so, well. Uh, you know, and here's this sort of Machiavellian point, right? Machiavelli does have this line. Every, every every regime is founded upon a crime. Somewhere, if you go back far enough, right, every every regime is founded on a crime in some way. I mean, this is uh, like somebody like, um, gosh, what's his name? Um, uh, Thomas Paine, you know, in his book, Common Sense, or his, his pamphlet, Common Sense, his argument against monarchy is, right, <laughs> the first monarchy was just a stronger guy who, beat everybody up uh, and, you know, claim legitimacy and legitimacy for his heirs. Is yeah. that Shakespeare's position? Uh, There's this line, uh, justice 
we shall see justice design the victor's chivalry. Yeah. Yeah. So is uh could it be both, right? Could it be yeah. just the strongest guy who's also somehow divinely uh ordained to to do this job? Yeah. Uh, is even our Lord says, right? Uh or somewhere in the Bible, right? No let uh be be subordinate to your masters, right? He tells Pilate you would have no authority over me if it was not given to you by my father. Yeah. Now, was there a Christian coronation of Pontius Pilate as, as the governor of Judea? Right. Right. Definitely not. But somehow even we don't know how Pilate came to power at that time. Yeah. Uh, He probably didn't do it in the most noble of ways, but somehow the father has given him explicitly given him command, even over, an adjust command, even over his son's death. Right. Yeah, kind yeah. of mind-blowing to think about that, huh? Yeah. I, I, I think Shakespeare's position might be that um, legitimate foundations are messy and that it is difficult to sort of point to a, a pure legitimate founding. But I think he's also extremely wary. I think he's extremely wary about rebellion against the current king. Um, and so it's it's clear that Richard II is a bad king, and it is absolutely clear that Henry Bolingbroke is a far, far better suited to rule, both by his temperament, by his education, uh, and the education by his father. And I think we, we can talk about that a little bit later. I think fathers are a really important part uh, of all of this. But um, well, I, I was just thinking, actually, I'm glad you brought that up uh, before we go on too much further. I'm thinking about this in my own uh, role as Pater Familius, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, got, I got kids and uh, God has sort of uh, set me forth to, to, to have custody over, over them. And do I deserve that? No, uh, you know, uh, absolutely not. But it's a real, it's a real authority right. that I find myself not worthy of. And I think that could be said of all rulers. Uh, when a bishop says mass, he's he's praying for you know me, your unworthy servant. Yeah. Uh, and any king, but that doesn't mean it's not real. So maybe that's how you that's how you square the circle, right? Is that the 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 governance of a king is sort of divinely set forth in providence, but yeah. always to unworthy servants yeah. like Peter. Classic example, Peter. Right. You know, huge screw up and uh, reed blowing in the wind, as as the name Simon indicates, and set forth to to be the prince of the apostles. Right. Yeah, and and I think I think that's right. And even even those regimes which may be founded on a crime, right? Um, That that there can be. Is there any other kind? Well, that's the question, right? Um, Yeah, you know, it's interesting. you know, Richard II is actually of, of the four plays is called the tragedy. It's called the tragedy of Richard II. Um, and that's interesting to me that for, for Shakespeare, there is something tragic about usurpation. Um, and and the interesting thing to me is I, I don't think that Shakespeare paints a, a sympathetic picture of Richard, um, certainly not early in the play. You look at this guy and you go, he is um, he's self-centered. He's vain. He's prone to flattery. Um, he, uh, has discussed for almost anyone outside of himself. Um, and yet when, when he 
abdicates, it's like a punch to the gut. I think if you read that that scene where he finally abdicates and talks about the washing the bomb off and and voluntarily handing over the scepter um, to Bolingbroke, it, there, there's something sad about it. Um, and I, I didn't like the guy the entire play. And yet give, Shakespeare give me the crown it. here, cousin. Seize the crown here, cousin. On this side of my hand, and on the side of yours. Now is the golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets, filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down, unseen and full of water, that bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. Uh, uh, I guess that is tragic. Yeah. And yet once Bolingbroke becomes Henry IV, there, there's something... Um, <clears throat> you know, R Richard prophesies, right, that that uh, the friends that help Bolingbroke to the crown are going to turn against him, right, that this is going to lead to all sorts of chaos. Um, <clears throat> and yet, um, it doesn't seem that Shakespeare's presentation of Henry IV and Henry V is um, these men are doomed and they can't do any good. Um you know, there's one character who's kind of interesting to me, who I think represents Shakespeare's view on it, um, and that is the Duke of York in in Richard II. He's an interesting. He's he's the um, he's the uncle of Richard and the uncle of Bolingbroke, right? Um, and when Bolingbroke comes back to usurp the crown, he criticizes Bolingbroke for that. Right? He says, uh, "You know, this is awful what you're doing." Um, it's unholy, right? It's wrong. Um, and in fact, earlier, um, the Duke of York uh, is uh, his sister-in-law pleads with him to uh, to hurt Richard II because her husband, another uncle, was killed by Richard II. It turns out, right, here's the crime in the background uh, to answer your question. It turns out that Richard II was involved, even though he was king, was involved in the murder of his other uncle, right? Yeah. Um, and, so, and so York... But York says, look, the grievances against kings uh, are not for us to um, to revenge. They're up to God. Right. Um, and so when Bolingbroke comes back later to usurp the crown, he criticizes him for it. But then when Bolingbroke becomes Henry V or Henry IV, right, he's willing to, to turn his own son in. One of his sons, uh, York, York's sons is the Duke of Almerley, who was loyal to Richard II. And he he's hatching a plot to kill the new Henry the Fourth, right? The hmm. same one that that the Duke of York had criticized. And he's he right. There's this great sort of chase scene at the end where the Duke of York and his son Amerly are riding to go to court to find Henry the Fourth, and the father wants to turn his own son in to be executed because he reveres the crown, uh, whoever holds it that highly. So That's okay, so let's because, go ahead. No, Go I was going to say there's an image of Prince Hal becoming the prodigal son and returning to his father, you mm. know, stopping the parting. But then you have that con totally contrary to that, the king who turns his son in. Right. Yeah. And the king, he does. The king does pardon him. Um, but yeah. Can we zoom out a little bit? Because I think this is a very important question. Is there a political regime we can imagine that we know of? has not been founded upon a crime. 
The first city founded on a crime, Kane City. Yeah. In many ways, even the the uh, the church militant, the city of God on earth, mm-hmm. founded on a crime, the murder the murder of its king. Yeah. Rome founded on a crime, Romulus and Remus. Right. Uh, I cannot think of an earthly city. I can. Yeah. The Christian family. There's almost a foundation that that uh, somehow retrieves back before the fall. In its hmm. that's the most the most primal, the most natural. Yeah, it's the one city at its best that's founded on love. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I this is sort of above my pay grade that question, but um, no, come on. There's no question <laughs> above your pay grade. Well, you know, it's it is interesting, right? There's We're not of, even paying you. Yeah, no, that's right. There's sort of a disagreement about um, equality. Well, so Augustine says, right, that that men rule in the family as a result of the fall, right, like that. That's a punishment for the fall. Um, and now you don't so, have to take the Augustinian line, right? But he, but he sees. Yeah, no, it's a great right? question. Husbands didn't rule wives, and fathers didn't rule families before the fall. There was sort of an equality. Really? Then why did the fall happen only after Adam eats the apple, and not when Eve eats it? Yeah, I, no, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> he, he has a certain custody. Yeah. Or a husbandry and, and not a rule in the sense of any. And that's that's the thing. We get confused as moderns with the word rule because we automatically think some sort of tyranny or mm-hmm. usurpation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the, the stewardship of husbandry yeah. is really Adam set forth in this garden and God actually shows him uh, what to do, what not to do. Adam gives things names. And then Eve actually comes along after that. Yeah. And there's no further divine instruction. So it's implicit in the text of Genesis that Adam would have commanded Mm. in the best sense, his wife of exactly what God commanded of him, because she knows when the serpent shows up that she shouldn't be doing this. And, uh, and the reason of the fall and God, this is explicit in the text. God says, Adam, because you listen to your wife Mm. says Adam for the first time, obeys his wife, uh, namely his flesh, rather than his father. Of course, Christ reverses this in the Garden of Agony, not the Garden of Paradise, where Christ has to deny his flesh, deny his bride for the sake of his father and his father's kingdom. Hmm. And and that's, I think, why uh, the the matrimony between Christ and church, and as it is reflected in the matrimony between Christian husband and wife, is sort of the ultimate remedy to the fall Mm. or as St. Paul says, um, uh, the great sacrament, August magnum corpus. When he's talking about wives being subordinate or subordinate to your husbands, he he says this, uh, a lot of translations say this is a great mystery, right? This is a terrible translation. Uh, This this is the, this is the great sacrament, right? There's no articles in Latin or Greek. 
Right. So, so there, what, what's great about marriage is that it takes us in a certain way beyond the political order of uh, domination caused by uh, fraud, trickery, death, murder, ultimately murder. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that none of the Kings in the Henry odd Richard Henry or Henry V are seen having good family lives in terms of um, marriages, right? I mean, we, we get yep. Henry and Kate at the very end of Henry V. Um, and it does seem important to Henry that Kate actually love him. Uh, you know, we have this interesting wooing scene where she's going to be married to him uh, as part of the deal. But it is important for him to to get her to consent. But, right, um, we, we don't see anything else there, right? Um, in fact, I don't think we see any of these kings happy, um, personally happy. Right? Yeah, power does that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's these there's these two wonderful passages, both by Henry the Fourth and the Fifth, that talk about um, lack of sleep for kings, right? And you sort of mm -hmm. wonder. I mean, I think a big question in all of these plays would be, if they're not Christians, um, and they don't see their kingship as service to God, why would you do this? Why 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 would one be a king, right? Um, they're called they're called to it by necessity right and so um that's what they have to do um but they don't seem why to get by, why not by pride could be glory it could be glory yeah. right and so i mean th there's the machiavellian argument you might say look for machiavelli and the prince the highest end that a prince can achieve is lasting glory immortality through glory i'm not convinced that henry v doesn't think it's worth it I don't think he thinks it's worth it. Um, there are a number of speeches where uh, in front of his man, he'll say, right, if it be a sin to covet honor, I'm the most uh, I'm the, the most offending man alive. Um, but I think you see his speech the night before Agincourt, where he talks about ceremony. Uh, what what is it? How, what makes a king different from a man except ceremony? Um, and yeah, gosh, and he does I, seem I, I would trade that in. I would trade that in in a minute for the piece that you know, a commoner has. Right. And, and he seems pretty willing to die normally. Yeah. Which I think is a virtue in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, without to die without fanfare, just, right. just go out. Um, yeah. So we've obviously, or we haven't, but there have been good Kings. Mm -hmm. So what would you say uh, makes, makes a good King or a good statesman? Mm -hmm. well, whether or not Henry V was one could be debated. We have had we've had saint saintly kings. Yeah. Uh, what makes what makes that work? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think right for a Christian, right for a Christian, um, there's a simple answer, which is well, maybe not simple, but um, there, there's clear guidance for what a good king would be, uh, which would be to um, approximate, you know. Uh, the city of God as much as is possible on earth, right? To allow uh, the free worship of the true God, to encourage virtue as much as possible, um, to within wh whatever a secular power may do to encourage sanctity. Um, whether or not 
you know, th- there are secondary earthly goals for for a good king um, that that a, that a non-Christian king could pursue. Um, it seems to me there's a question in uh, in in the Henriad as to whether or not um, there are any sort of Christian ends being pursued in the city or not. Uh, I have to admit I don't see them there. Um, it's true that Henry the Fourth wants to go to Jerusalem to fight in the Crusades. But it's it it doesn't seem like it's for good reasons, right? Yeah, I guess you make a case that the the unification would be the end. I think yeah. So I mean, I think there are a couple of good ends that are pursued by by Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, which are naturally good. Um, that is unity, yeah, unity in the city, and and Henry the Fourth has to do that defensively by by fighting civil wars. Henry V wants to do it by fighting a foreign war. And that's one of the things his father teaches him before he dies in the last lesson. His dad kind of gives him two lessons. One is don't be, don't be seen too much by the common people. Um, because if they see you too much, um, then when they do see you, it's not special. It is important that you have, that, <laughs> yeah. that you impress and that you get the common people to love you. Um, he says, because it helped me become king, frankly. Right? He has this great opinion which made me king is something that you need to maintain well. Um, and you need to do that by not constantly submitting yourself to the opinions of the people. But, right, so um, he teaches them that and he teaches them that you need to fight a foreign war. And Henry does that in Henry V. And, he, and you know, there's this great scene, by the way, right? I mean, in Henry IV, part one and two, there are both English rebels, but also Scottish and Welsh rebels and Irish problems. Right. Uh, oh, that in Richard II, Richard goes off to fight the Irish, and in Henry the Fourth, Part One, Part Two, it's the Welsh and the Scottish uh, who are 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 the problems. The, there's a great scene in Henry the Fifth when they're at battle uh, in France. I think it's outside of Harfleur, uh, right after the "Once More into the Breach, Dear Friends" speech, where you have uh, an Irish uh, kind of mid-level officers, a Welshman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman, are all there fighting together right and yeah. so and ha- so that foreign war is actually able to do it um then you also have the burgundians too. the burgundians were around there can't remember didn't they jump ship at some point uh i don't know i mean the duke of burgundy kind of uh uh negotiates the peace between france and england at the end of that play okay okay so they were sort of semi-independent yeah. i think got it okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting um, okay so um but also, I mean, yeah, I, think, I think Henry does, I think Henry V is able, he cares about certain vices and does try to root those out in his regime. Um, whether that's because he cares about the souls of his, of his, of his subjects or, or he thinks it leads to good order, I don't know. But um, his dismissal of Falstaff at the end of Henry IV, part two, right? Um, because of his viciousness, right? And he tells you, you can come back after you've, you've reformed yourself. Um, now he does that in front of other people. And so this may be for show. Um, he hangs his friend uh, for robbing a church in Henry V, right? And so at least enforcing, you know, the forms of piety is important to Henry. Um, and that's good, right? I mean, that, even if, even if uh, you, Laws, it's difficult for laws to touch the sort of internal motivations, impossible maybe, of, of one's subjects. But 
we ought to try to um, order one's external actions through laws. And I think Henry does care about that. So, yeah. Where, where do you see us today? Uh, you know, I think people on both ends would make a case in the American experiment anyway, that our democracy is imploding. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you see a way out of that? Do you see any silver linings? And do you see precisely where we've gone wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I'm somewhat pessimistic on this question. But but that may be because I don't really see the picture, right? So I, I think the, the information coming to me as to what the state of the actual union is in terms of our actual partisanship. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, It seems that if you listen to the loudest voices, that there are two completely different worlds in which we're living, two completely different understandings of human flourishing, of justice, uh, of the common good. I don't know if that's true or not, right? That's the way it appears to me. Um, is, Is that actually what the majority of Americans feel? I don't know, but certainly there's there are tendencies, right, moving us into those uh, completely two two different worlds, right? And we see that in the in the media we choose to watch. Uh, we see that in the education that we're we're choosing for our children, right? I think uh, so many of us who are you know maybe in the sort of big tent of sort of smaller Orthodox Christians are opting out, opting out of public education for homeschooling, for classical charter schools, for classical Christian schools. And the type of citizen being formed by those schools and the types of citizens being formed in our public schools, I think, are radically different types of citizenries. And so if that's the case, um, what if, if we think political discourse is difficult, impossible now on the larger scale, what does it look like 15 years from now um, when you have two completely different citizenries that have been formed by different education systems? So. But how how just let's distill that difference. How can in the simplest, most concise possible terms, what is the difference? Because mm-hmm. you're right, yeah. we're not we're not even communicating with each other anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it's um, one has an anthropology and a metaphysics that is. Uh, in line with the Christian tradition, and one does not ultimately. I mean, to to overly simplify it. Yeah. Um, now. <laughs> Can I tell a quick story that helps me understand this a little bit? Maybe. Year, years ago, when I was a much younger human, I was doing some consulting work in, in Washington, D.C. for, uh, you know, Alan Keyes, presidential candidate. Yeah. And uh, I was at dinner with him and his wife, and and some others and i was a kid and i was uh, you know i was asking just trying to make conversation and i turned to uh, i don't think he mind me sharing this story at all but i turned to his his bride and i said mrs keys so what's it like to be married to a politician and the room went silent as if i had just accused this man of something dastardly silent. She did not answer me. She stared at me. A very, you know, a very graceful woman, but she could not answer that question. 
And somebody jumped in, you know, napkin wipe and says, uh, statesman, John, statesman. And in that moment, I learned a difference between the statesman and the politician. Because if you know Dr. Keyes, he is definitely a statesman. And I think the difference has something to do with one who is uh, striving to rule for his own good and his own ends versus the good of those he serves. That's what the difference between a statesman and a politician is. And I don't think in our political realm, with very few exceptions to this day, we have any statesmen or stateswomen in power. Yeah. I think that's generally right. Um, One thing that's really scary to me. um, So what, what what is the most natural human way to get people to care about those outside of themselves? Like in a, in a meaningful way, right? In a, in a way that actually um, inspires you to sacrifice. Um, I don't think it's causes that you learn about, frankly. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's having children for most people, not for everyone. Yeah, right? yeah, um, it is. For That's me, so I mean, I, from my own personal story, I, I think, you know, even even after I mean, we had a, a kid uh, a year into marriage, but when I first got married, it was sort of like I really lived the same way I did as a single person, in a sense, right? I mean, with with fidelity to my wife, but but in terms of like, I did what I wanted to do, except yeah. that I came home and lived with my wife. So, what what is troubling to me is is the increasing tendency of people to not have children, right? So. Um, I, I think right there's yes. there is this there's this big divide between you could say right between Christians non-believers the anthropological metaphysical commitments of one the natural law tradition all of those things on one side and all these things a rejection of that on the other side or alternatives um, but that's at the theoretical level one way in which you can sort of live together um, something that sort of moderates that difference at least temporarily, is the having of children. There's something at a natural level where right, um, believers and non-believers who have children seem to be able to come to, to together to agree about certain things, yes. about what they want in their regime. I mean, I think you see that with some of the elections recently, like Youngkin in Virginia, right, where um, people- That's thought, true. They right, crossed right, the they line. Said, well, look, I, I, may not yeah. be, I, I may not follow the, the church's teaching on- on abortion and, and, you know, whatever, but there's something about people doing these things to my children that I just find really problematic. Um, yes. And, and, and as a ruler, having a child really makes you realize that you are not in it for yourself. You really can't be um, because there's this thing waking you up at four in the morning. Or waking my wife up in the in my case, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it, it's it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I myself, uh, you know, in my own transition from sort of wanting to live the active political life to coming to love the great books. If it were up to me, I wouldn't really do much. I wouldn't engage politically at all. Yeah. Um, right, because it's not what I love to do. I love I love time with my children. I love having great book seminars with students. Yep. 
Um, but but to the extent that there's a demand and there's a need, yeah. you're you're performing a good, you're performing a service. And so far as one does engage, so far as one does do, one even votes, right? right? That that can be a service, and you can promote the common good by being politically active in the best sense. Yeah, the Abbey. We're about to uh, on. On September 20th, we're having a, a big conference with the American Conservative. They're coming to the Abbey, and we're going to do a Life in America After Row panel with some um, wonderful speakers. Oh, yeah. And we're excited about it. We're coming under some fire for it. People are saying, well, you know, college shouldn't be political, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is funny, right? But, yeah. um, you know, but normally, I mean, um, uh, you know, and I, I'm posting it out there on, on social media, wanting to get people to come. And I'm, it wouldn't normally be, you know, what I would want to spend my time doing. But it's just to me, it's so important. Um, you know, we're at this crossroads now where. Um, yeah, it is. It is. And I never thought I'd live to see today. Well, I kind of I hoped, but I never I never imagined. I mean, I guess I. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I still hasn't set in that Rose that Roe is gone. It hasn't set in. Uh, I mean, I, I leg groups, you know busloads 10 year, 10 11 years of uh you know mar- to the march for life in in San Francisco and and a lot of work was put in by so many really really good people to get to this point yeah. and this victory just feels like all right this this experiment that is America might be salvageable after all mm-hmm. yeah. came at just the right time i think yeah yeah uh, where can people find you and uh, you got any books you want to plug anything, anything you on Twitter? Uh, no, I don't do much social. I'm on LinkedIn a lot, but uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I would just say, I just urge people to come and, and check out the honors college at Belmont Abbey. Would you be open to ever teaching for the Albertus Magnus Institute? Yeah. You know, sorry. I know we, we were kind of just touching on, on the uh, Henry odd, I would love it. Yeah. I mean, uh, somebody stole my, my, my main area that is Tocqueville. I saw you guys just did one. That is my, my big area, but, um, yeah, would love to do that. That's Henry really Park. good to know. Yeah. And maybe we could talk about even teaming up for, for, uh, with Pavlos Papadopoulos on that course. Yeah. He's, he's Joe, you just wrote a new, an article on Tocqueville, didn't you, for the Abbey newsletter, the forum? Uh, I saw you. Yeah, so that that is our newsletter. Um, that's that's kind of a, a fruit of the entire honors college interviews and 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 our events. So I did just do a podcast uh, on. Um, it was right after Roe got leaked. So me and a few colleagues did talk about the kind of background of the the constitutional law and all of that. So where can we find that? Yeah, that is um, Belmont well, Abbey. It's called. Let me see the web. It's called Conversatio. Um, which actually doesn't mean conversation. It's a Benedictine vow they take to a complete conversion of life. Um, let me see if I can find the link for you. But um, yeah. Wow. Um, and so that's, we have a podcast. Yeah. So Abby. people can Google it, I'd imagine. Yeah. It's right here. It's um, yeah. Belmont Abbey college.edu slash podcast. So well, imagine that. Yeah. Awesome. We'll check it out and looking forward uh, to uh, earning uh, fellows in the in the AMI fellowship through your channels and and uh, looking forward to relentlessly promoting the good work of the Belmont Abbey Honors Program. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so you'll have to come back and and join us and get into some other things as well because I think we only scratched the surface today. Yeah, great.
Sounds good. Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph Waisaki. Thank you. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.